Hey everybody, it is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to a new episode this week of Scale Up. So my guest starts off this week by sharing his very humble beginnings, how hard he hustled through the early stages of his journey. And I mean, we go back to his university days, even his childhood, and how those experiences taught him to work hard and smart, which apparently became his advantage. Because if you fast forward from now, he has been able to absolutely transform himself and he is known as the side hustle millionaire. Do you know who I'm talking about? Okay, let me keep going. He also shares how he shifted his career from a very financially rewarding job, but something that he wasn't necessarily passionate about, to deciding to become the person he is now, a business mentor, a speaker, a best-selling author, and also a podcast host. So it was always like the teaching element. I, I couldn't wait to learn, but also couldn't wait to teach. So I'm, I'm a mentor, I'm a coach, I'm a teacher. He shares with me today how a near-death experience while racing cars helped trigger this decision and how after that accident, he had to ask himself, if that event indeed took his life that day, what would he be remembered for? And did he like the answer to that question? Well, ladies and gentlemen, joining me today as he shares so many amazing stories of strength and character and of courage is Tony Watley. Tony is the man behind the brand 365 Driven, which is dedicated to helping you discover your potential and achieve excellence in entrepreneurship. I started my first company at age 28, and that's the one that I grew as a side business while I was working in my career. I grew that into a large $400,000 a year profit, and then I sold that for millions of dollars in 2007. So without further ado, welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley, Tony Watley. Let's go. Hey, everybody. It is Nick Bradley here yet again. Welcome to Scale Up. Another week, another amazing guest on the show. I have today with me the side hustle millionaire himself, Mr. Tony Watley. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, Nick, thank you for having me on the show, man. I can't wait to get to know you a little bit better and maybe surprise or inform some of these people listening to your show. Well, the magic of these sort of conversations, I think, is the fact that like you don't get, spend a, get a lot of time to get to know someone beforehand. So we've had a few minutes just kind of chatting about our various mm. stories and things like that. And what I said before we kicked off is I was reading your bio and honestly, it was like reading my bio in, in elements, you know, the idea that, you know, you start off in a job, you start off doing something that you're expected to do. You get frustrated in that environment. You realize that you're probably an entrepreneur in the making, but it kind of hasn't hit you yet. And then you go off and lean into that and you realize it is what you do and you create amazing success about it. So that was my summary. <laughs> well, you know, just, just a full disclosure, I've been stalking you for a couple of years and I just totally plagiarized your bio. That's all I did. And it happens. It happens. I don't take it offense. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of going through some fanboyism right now, just talking to you. I'm just, just being honest. Maybe it's the fact that actually the stories that, that sort of join us a little bit here are not that unique. Perhaps they're the stories that happen to a lot of people. Mm. <laughs> let's, let's kick off. Let's, let's get um, you know, the audience here getting to know you a little bit more than what my, my, uh, my attempt was just a minute ago. Let's, let's hear the story. And I, I would say that I grew up lower middle class. And I didn't realize that I grew up without money until later on in life. You just kind of think that that's the way it is. And I know that there's a lot of listeners out there that can resonate with this. And you look back at some of the things that you ex experienced in childhood or watched your parents struggle, and you just thought that was normal. That's normal life. That's all you know, right? But basically, the first three houses I grew up in were what most people would call a flip house. 
So my parents were really valued education. So we moved to a, a suburb of Houston, Texas, which is my home city. And that was so that we could get a better school system that we could live in. And we barely could afford to live in these cities, right? But we would buy the crappiest house on the crappiest street. And for the next few years, my sister and my mom and my dad and I would restore the house. We would scrape, paint, paint, replace the carpet, get rid of wallpaper, just do all the stuff like basically remodel a home while we lived in it. And as we started to grow a little bit bigger, we'd just sell that house and move further down the block to the next little bit bigger crappy house. And so that happened three times in my childhood. And I I never lived in a newer house until I had our, and ever, never actually until I bought my first one. So, so you're flipping these houses, like you're, you're effectively going into something that needs a heap of work. You're doing it up. And it was, was that what your parents were doing for money at that point? Was that their job? No, no, that was just so they could afford to live in that city with that school system, you know, had a really top level education for public schools and very fortunate for that. I mean, it's, but I thought that was normal. I just thought this is what you do. You buy a crappy house and you restore it. And, and the thing is, I enjoy that stuff. And I started to look at different things of seeing the potential in things like my very first car I had to build. I I spent $1,200 working at McDonald's and mowing yards. It was a Camaro it was all rusty and I would spend every evening out there sanding on it and replacing it. And my dad and I would work on this car and it took a little over a year and a half for me to finish this car to make it drivable. So I was able to drive it through high school. So I got really good at identifying like, yeah, it looks like shit, but man, what is it? What could it be? You know, what, what is the potential of that? And, and I, and I also have that, I think ability to see that in people. And I've always been that way where I, I've always been the encourager. I'd see my friend's, struggling with something and I'd always encourage them or acknowledge them or just show them that maybe you could try it this way and they do it a little bit better. And early on, I thought I wanted to be a teacher or a stuntman or a fighter pilot or a race car driver. So I have this adrenaline rush type tendency, but also like to help and mentor people. And it even goes back to the childhood. I remember just really being really curious and wanting to learn new things all the time, like whatever it was, I was reading books, I was practicing tricks on my skateboard and my BMX bicycles and and I would just get really good at these things and I would teach people. So it was always like the teaching element. I, I couldn't wait to learn, but also couldn't wait to teach. So I'm, I'm a mentor, I'm a coach, I'm a teacher. And when I started when thinking- you, When did you find that out? I mean, obviously you can reflect back and look at what was happening when you were growing up from a different position, you know, from the future, right? Yeah. But when did you actually connect that together with what you do now? I think I knew that I always wanted to be a coach or a teacher, not in the business sense of what I do now, right? But- I think that certain people just have that tendency that we just look for that. That's how we check off the box of gratitude or fulfillment. Yeah. And when I was looking at the salaries for school teachers, I was like, man, I don't want to make that crappy, but I don't want to go to school for five, four or five years, pay for that degree myself because we didn't have money and get out and not make enough money to pay for the school loans. It's like, I don't want to do that. That's a terrible idea. Like I'm, I'm still common sense wise. Right. So I actually was a substitute teacher at local high schools, teaching high level classes like physics and calculus. And I wanted to teach people that wanted to be there. Like I didn't want to teach, teach the, the low level classes that people hated the teacher, you know? So I was really selective about that kind of stuff. And I went and get, I got an engineering degree. I went to school, put myself through school as a, as a construction worker and a welder and a pipe fitter and whatever else I could do, wait tables on the weekends. And I, it took me seven years of going to school and I would go to school at nighttime. And that was a really struggle of my life was, you know, the whole 24 seven hustle and grind to me was working full time in construction, which is hot as hell here in Houston and going to school at night and sleeping about three hours a night to make that work. And I was broke. I was sleep deprived. I actually had more gray hair in college 
I think because I was eating double cheeseburgers for the 99 cent menu and I was not getting <laughs> enough sleep and I was always stressed out and I would wake up in, in cold sweats wondering like, what is due today? Like, what do, what do I need to turn in today? I just, I mean, I think I had those nightmares for years after I graduated, but that's kind of- Were you, you burnt out at that point? Were you just really tired from, or, or had you built up a certain degree of resilience in yourself to be able to just push through? Dude, I was wore out. I, I remember my sophomore year of college, my, my original plan was to get the engineering degree and then go to law school and become like a patent attorney, an intellectual property. I just- I wanted to work on devices and just mechanical things. So I got the mechanical degree and I said, man, lawyers that have that degree make a lot of money. So I was always focused on how do I make six figures? How do I do that? Because everybody tells you like, go be a doctor, a lawyer, engineer. Well, I said, well, shit, I don't like being a doctor. So maybe I can be a, a lawyer engineer and make a lot of money. And people make a lot of money doing that. But it was always a pursuit to kind of break out of the middle class to go pursue those things. And that's the whole reason I was doing it. And and here I am teaching and coaching people now. It kind of makes full circle. Yeah, I'm still going back to what I really love doing. I'm curious when when people kind of, you know, th there's always a bit of friction I find before someone finds out what their true purpose or mission is, right? And there's mm -hmm. a bit where sometimes it can feel a little bit like a repeatable cycle, right? So you kind of keep trying to break out of that that sort of comfort zone, but you get pulled back in. Were you getting a bit of that before? I mean, because one of the things, just to kind of contextualize this for people listening, it was something quite interesting in your bio, which I, I really connected with, which was the idea that, you know, you know, when you got promotions and all this sort of stuff, you know, the titles, status, whatever it is, it just didn't drive fulfillment. And I had that for years, right? And I'm just curious, at what point in time did you break through that comfort zone into what you're doing now, which is obviously clearly what you were designed to do? I would say that rewinding that I was in my late twenties when I finally graduated school and I got the entry level project engineer roles. And I think my salary around that time was probably 47,000 a year. You know, it's not too yeah. bad for someone right out of school. And the thing I didn't understand is that they treated me like someone who just graduated school that was 21 that had no applicable experience, but I was the guy working in those chemical refineries and at those manufacturing plants, pulling the levers, doing the things, designing things, assembling things. So I had a, seven years of practical experience plus the degree, but everybody wanted to treat me like I just graduated and like was new. And I remember looking at some of these roles that were like middle, lower management type roles. And I was like, man, I can do that. I've been, I've been doing this kind of stuff for years already. And they would always tell me things like, you know, you got to pay your dues. You're too young to manage million dollar contracts. You know, no one in our history of our companies ever managed that kind of stuff at your age. So it was always this wait your turn stuff. <laughs> and and that, that really drove me nuts. So I started looking for external ways to be creative or make my own decisions or take my own risks or learn business. And I started my first company at age 28. And that's the one that I grew as a side business while I was working in my career. I grew that into a large, you know, $400,000 a year profit. And then I sold that for millions of dollars in 2007. So the thing is that I was dedicated to my career and my automotive passion, which I built a long uh, online community is what I built. And it grew to over 300,000 registered members. And we were the number one. And even the people that bought it today, even today, it's still the number one General Motors performance website on the internet. And I helped start that thing and we sold it. So, you know, the book title, Side Hustle Millionaire, it's based on my true story, but I learned to become a better leader and gained a lot more confidence externally than working in that career. Because although eventually I was making it to middle management, multiple six-figure salary level, I, I had already prepared myself in my late 20s and my early 30s 
with a boost of confidence and understanding that I actually can do this stuff. I can actually visualize things, go create the action plan and go execute that and get the results. So that kind of confidence is overflowed into the career path, the corporate side. And I was able to really navigate and climb the corporate ladder pretty fast because of that. Why, why did you do it as a side hustle out of, you know, cause obviously it was successful and it was successful mm -hmm. quickly. Why did you not do the whole burn the boats thing? For me, it was, it was always that, I think, growing up with a little bit of the scarcity mindset and realizing that I had plenty of time. I mean, after going through seven years of college and working full-time and going to nights, I, I was sitting on, at the couch at 4.30 in the afternoon thinking, like, what do I do? Do I just go to the bars and be like all the other young dudes? Or do I just sit on the couch and watch TV? Like, what do you do? Like, like to me, that felt like a part-time job. 40 hours felt like a part-time job after going through that. And I was actually willing to put my apron on and go back and work in restaurants. I was actually waiting tables for two years after I graduated with an engineering job, with an engineering salary, but I would still go do that. And most people would not understand that. But the thing is, is that I was really honest with myself and I said, Hey, am I where I want to be? And if I'm not, what am I willing to do to go try to get to where I want to be? Right. Mm, and so, you know, I would see people at the restaurants. Sometimes the people that worked at the engineering job, the manufacturing facility would see me waiting tables on you know, in the evenings like, Tony, what are you doing here? You're an engineer at our company. Like they, they report to me sometimes. Right. And they'd see me waiting tables. And I said, hey, I, I give the same answer. I just told you, Nick, it's like, I'm not where I want to be. And this is going to help me get there. And they were just blown away because I think too many people put their ego and their pride ahead of what they should be doing. They're worried about what people are potentially going to criticize them for or judge them for. But to me, unless those people are paying your bills, like I don't care what their opinion was. And I never have really cared what other people's opinions were. So that's kind of where I was at. I was, I was in that space of just, what do I need to do? And, and at that time, I was still thinking about how do I trade units in my time for units of dollars? We were all thinking about, hey, right, okay. if, you, if you need more money, go get another job. If you need more money, pick up overtime. If you need more money, go get a third job. It was never like this business thing. But you asked, like, why did I not go full time on the business? Is because through engineering and through the processes I created, I, I worked offshore. I was international, like we talked about before I went on the camera. But I worked sometimes offshore. I'd be gone for 30 days on a boat. Sometimes I didn't have the internet, right? And so I had to build these companies to operate without my presence. And I learned that from engineering and learning that from the corporate world. So if I could write systems and processes that I can train people to do, then I didn't have to be there. So I was, it was really passive. And the other reason I didn't go full-time is because we were already number one in the market. Within a year, we became number one based on revenue and membership size. We had over 300,000 registered members. And so everybody was trying to take us down, but we were at the top. So me quitting to go full-time would not have increased market share. I was already at the top. See what I mean? And you were enjoying what you were doing also as let's call it the day job. Yeah. It was really high technical things. I was learning okay. a lot of, I was getting to play with big money for the time. I remember writing purchase orders for $1 million thinking like, holy crap, like I'm responsible for this. And, you know, and later in my career, I'm managing hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. But Early on, I just remember writing a purchase order for a hundred, like a million dollars. I was like, oh my gosh, like this is crazy. But again, that gives you a lot of comfort and confidence around money. And you realize that risk mitigation and managing money is not much different depending on where the comma is on that number. It's just, it's the same thought process. Once you it's get just, exposure to it. Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's just bigger numbers. That's all it is. The other thing that's interesting, I think, again, correct me if I'm wrong here. I'm just kind of listening to what you're saying here is, 
if you are growing up in an environment where you had to go to school, there's the expectation of, you know, there's a sacrifice being made there. I, I take it you're also coming home and probably helping do the flipping, doing up the flipping of the house. <laughs> so there's, I imagine you weren't, you know, even growing up doing a stand, what, what people would call the standard day, right? You already had built the machine, built your own sort of work ethic around that stuff. Yeah. My, my parents worked extremely hard. My mom is a Japanese immigrant. I was actually born in Japan on a military base. My dad was a U.S. Marine Vietnam vet, and I just saw them both struggle in different ways. My dad was the physical labor. He worked in chemical refineries after the military. And my mom worked in the public schools as a cafeteria worker for 30 years before she retired. So I got to see like hard work and just doing the right thing and not they really had too much pride. We didn't take handouts and stuff like that. But I had a really happy childhood and I got to do things, but we just didn't have money. So I had to go be resourceful. You know, a lot of people think about kidpreneurship and, you know, that, that buzzword. And yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, dude, dude, I would just knock doors and mow yards and wash cars and walk dogs and rake leaves just to buy video games or skateboards. It was it was like the only way I was going to get those things because I didn't have allowance. And unless it was my birthday or Christmas, I wasn't going to get any, any gifts. So my parents really supported that. Like, hey, if you want that, go knock on doors and go buy the gas and go do that yourself. And I was like, cool. So I was always being supported by them. So when you, when you did the first side hustle, and I want to mm -hmm. talk a bit more about that, um, were you surprised with the success? Yes, absolutely. I, I never built that company thinking it would make six figures, much less seven figures. I just never thought that. I, I was really focused on just wanting to build a really cool place that I could learn to code and do graphic design and HTML for websites. I was playing around, learning websites, reading books. And I said, you know what? I just want to build a little community online where I can get to meet other car people, people that like cars and racing and modifying their cars. And I'm just going to make this little hangout on the internet. And soon enough, we did that. And there was maybe a hundred of us initially. And we kind of chatted every day about cars and how to become better drivers and add horsepower. And I was like, cool. And soon enough, these shops would join in and they go, hey, can we advertise here? And I was like, well, yeah, I guess, you know, we, yeah, we could do ads. We could put your banner ad there. We can give you guys a special profile that designates you as a, as a sponsor and charge them a, a monthly fee for that. And, and so it was entrepreneurship as you go. And, and the thing is, is like, you know, you and I interview a lot of people and the most successful entrepreneurs I've ever met did the exact same thing. They were so focused on providing a valuable service or product that the money just came later on. It was just like, if you do this really well, and you help a lot of people, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, the dollars just show up because of that attention and that leverage that you've built. So by month 10, we were making about $10,000 profit per month. And I was like, oh shit, this, this is like a business now. It's not a hobby anymore. It's like it, it exceeded my salary at that point. And so I said, well, maybe I need to go create a bank account or something separate, or maybe I need to, <laughs> maybe I need to go create a, what is that? A LLC, whatever the hell that is. And and so you start to realize like, you don't have to have all the answers. I think way too many people need all these answers and they read all these books and they listen to all of our shows and they go to all these seminars and they take notebooks full of notes, but they never read again. And they don't start, they don't do something. And the number one regret when I was interviewing over a hundred entrepreneurs to write my book was the number one regret. It was like, I, I wish I would have started sooner. That was the number one regret resounding. And so I'm really fortunate that I'm just kind of had that daredevil personality and I was willing to just go start something understanding. I didn't have all the answers, but I was willing to start it and improve as I go. And that's what everybody should be doing. 
There's also something else that jumps out to me again, as you're talking is that you didn't overthink it. Right. So so there's a couple of other pieces, you know, it's a passion area for you, right. You know, cars, racing, all that sort of Mm -hmm. stuff. So therefore, you know, that's probably about as closely aligned to mission as whatever the bloody definition of that is. Right. Because it's not work, right. You weren't doing it for work. You were doing it because it was what you love doing and you didn't overcomplicate it. You didn't have to think about taking action and make it a chore because it's what you love. Right. And see, I think sometimes just to draw a line under that for people listening is, you know, people, people will think about, I'm going to start a business and be an entrepreneur or whatever, because I want to become a millionaire. And they think about that and they don't think about the most important thing, which is what value and what service am I providing for others? Absolutely. You know, people fixate on the numbers too much. I get coaching clients that come in and they want to join the group and I say, Hey, what are your goals? I say, I want to make a million dollars. Like, well, how do you propose to do that? Well, I don't know. I was like, so you're really fixating on the number rather than the value, like you said. And it's, it's the other way around. Like I think about money is the result of something. It's the result of the actions or the value that you create. So even like, like we use sports analogies, right? You know, UK football, we'll use your sport because we're not using our football. Use basketball if you want. I'm a, I'm a basketball fan. So. Well, there you go. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to appeal to the listeners here. So I, I give it the, so think about this. Like we call it soccer, you call it football. You don't, you don't practice points. You don't, you don't, you don't like join a sports team and go practice making points. You, you practice the plays, you practice executing the plays and the ball handling and really rehearsing these things over and over and over until you can't even fail anymore. Like you're so proficient at the plays that when you execute those properly, the end result is you may get a goal and there you may get a win in the game. So most people that think about that number, they're thinking about the points, not the plays. They're thinking like, I need to go like make, you know, for us, like touchdowns, like I need to go make touchdowns. I need to, I just want to make touchdowns. Like, well, how do you propose to do that? Like, what is the steps? Like, what is the skill set that you need? And what do you do? You practice touchdowns? Or do you practice plays? Right. So you got to put the, the cart back behind the horse and realize, like, I need to go focus on the things that I can control and be really good at those. And the score, which is the money will come as a result. So it, you can't be, that can't be your focus. It can't be purpose. If, if money is your purpose, that's a really weak purpose and you're going to get burned out and you're not going to enjoy what you do. Because a lot of times people sacrifice their true purpose to go have some stupid opportunity and do something that's not even aligned with them because they think that's the fastest path to that number. And that's the wrong way to think. Or they get lost halfway through. I mean, I, a lot of people ask me the definition or the transition between startup to scale up, right? Because my whole thing is scaling mm-hmm. to exit. And quite often when someone starts a business, they might start off in the same way you did, right? Really Mm -hmm. engage behind a passion. Then it becomes complex and then they forget the reason why they started. And that's when they start to go downhill. Do you you experience that in your community sometimes or people coming to you? Absolutely. I think that there's the shiny object syndrome that most people seem to have where maybe they're struggling or things are not as going as smooth as they think they should, or they feel entitled to in their business that's existing. And they see Peter over here doing something that's making more money or has a faster acceleration curve. And they go, you know what? I'm going to go learn what Peter does. And I think I'm going to give that a try. You know, like, I think, I think the biggest flagrant foul of that is real estate. My wife's a realtor here in Houston, but most people watch the TV shows like million dollar listing and selling on sunset. And, you know, Oh, you sell a $2 million property and you make that much commission on one sale. Like, Oh my gosh, I could be rich just selling one house. And they don't realize that these reality shows are staged and that 
some of these places get listings because they have a TV show. So you're not going to get those listings. The people with a TV show will get that listing because it has more exposure, has more marketing behind it, right? So they think these things are going to be easy, but I always think about like get rich quick. To me, get rich quick is measured in years, not months. And if you're trying to do something that thinking you're going to get a result in months, you're wasting your time. I mean, we see these people nowadays on the social media that are they're always in the latest, greatest thing. Like, you know, like, oh, it's Forex. Oh, it's CBD. Oh, it's crypto. Like they're, they're hopping around. It's the same people. Like they're kind of like those people you meet that have like a different business card every six months. And you're, oh, you, go, you see them, you're, you're like, oh man, what are they into now? What are they going to try to sell me now? What are they going to try to invite me to do now? And, you know, to me, it's like, why are you hopping so fast to the latest trendy get rich quick thing when you didn't get rich quick on your last five things that you tried? So why do you keep doing that? Right. Let's unpack that a bit here, right? Because I think it's a good thing for people to listen. Why do you think that's the case? Why do people do that? They're easily easily manipulated by the the copywriting and the just just the presence of those people that are selling that idea. Like it's you know understanding influence and brainwashing. Not too not too yeah. much difference there. But if if it's done with the wrong intent, you attract those type of people. So they yeah. just keep. Being falling for it, kind over of manipulation and over. to some degree, very much. But, but how much of it do you think comes? Because I've thought about this quite a bit. Like, how much do you think it comes back to confidence and self belief at the core? Like, because there's a piece where there's a you know what's the famous saying around focus? I think it's either a Warren Buffett or a um, uh, a Bill Gates saying it's it's not what you focus on, it's what you say no to. Mm, I mean, same yeah. thing to some extent, but a really nice way of putting it. And I always think that if someone if someone says you know what well, I'm going to do one thing. Right. And I'm just going to stick at that one thing. I'm going to get good at it, even though in the beginning I may not be. And I'm just going to keep on going. And to your point, which I love, years, not months, right? You're probably going to be pretty successful because there's a process of attrition. Like other people are just going to give up. Whereas if you keep flipping around the place to all sorts of other things, then there's higher risk in that. I, I think, right, just put my, my view is I think people just don't have the belief or self confidence enough in themselves that the thing they're going to do is going to work. And then they get lazy and bored. And move on to something else, but they don't realize that that's a perpetual cycle, which is never going to get them the outcome. I think it's a mix of that for sure. I think that's a that's a high component of what you're talking about—the self belief or the lack of. But here, here's my theory on this, and I've seen this happen over and over and over, and I've helped a lot of clients get through this. Anytime you're starting something outside of your norm, outside of your your daily routine, like whether it's going on a fitness journey or diet plan or just something that's not normal and, and you put it out there. Like you, a lot of times you hesitate starting a business. You're so worried that like you overthink it, like you talked about earlier. And then you finally go, you know what? I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to start. So you go announce that, right? Hey, I'm going to go on a fitness journey. Hey, I'm going to go start a business. Hey, I'm going to do this. And, and everybody like claps for you. They're like, Hey, congrats. Like they're, they're kind of cheering for you a little bit, like initially, right? Cause you announced it. It's different. And they know it's a positive thing you're trying to do. And so what happens is you get this, you, you just start to release like, oh, this isn't going to be as hard as I thought. Like, I thought all these people would just criticize me or just not support me. But look at, you know, all 50 of my Facebook friends have like said, thank you, know, congrats. And, you know, they're going to support me all the way through this. This is going to be easy walking right now. I can, whew, wow, this is easy, right? So, so that, that's how it always goes, right? And so here, here's how I'm going I'm to play out this scenario for the listeners. Maybe someone out there listening has experienced this or they're about to experience this and I want to save them some heartache, right? So two weeks later, you're, you're, you're doing daily updates. Let's say you're, you're like, I'm doing this. I read this book or whatever. Like you're just sharing it. 
And you start to see that the engagement on your posts starts to kind of dwindle down. It's trickling down. It's very few people. Like you go make a video and you might get like your best friend will like it. And that's it. And you're like, well, man, like where are all those people that kind of gave me the golf clap or the cheers like early on? Like, where are they? They're not supporting me anymore. And so that's where the self-doubt creeps in that you mentioned. And you start thinking, maybe I'm not cut out for this. You know, I watch Nick and Tony and they got these successful shows and I speak better than them and I look better than them. And, you know, but nobody likes my show. So maybe I'm just pissing people off. I'm just not good at this. Like, I don't know what it is. So you start to get the thinking about quitting, the exiting, right? And what happens is that people are still watching you. There are actually more people watching you in that period of time. They're just not engaging. They're not liking or sharing or doing anything with you because all of us as a collective society are so tired of the bullshit people that can go really hard at something new for one to two months, like all in one to two months. We see this with podcasters or authors, like whatever, like we see this. And so we all know that we're skeptics and we go, Hey, if Nick is going to do this, I'm going to watch. I'll give him some time, just see what he's doing. I'm curious, but I want to make sure he's earning my attention. Right. And that's what I call no man's land. It's like the battlefront. It's like the, the space between two front lines that you have to cross and you're getting shot at and you feel like, like you're alone and you feel like you're going to go fire up a microphone and nobody's listening. You're going to feel like you're going to get on a video and nobody's going to watch it. You feel like you're going to create a post and nobody's going to read it. And that's the way it appears, but people are watching. They're just doing it in silence. And the thing is, is that if you can just show up every single day and show that you're truly dedicated to what you're doing and show the results and show the transformation and the progress and just keep sharing and just showing up every day, What's going to happen is around six months, people will start to like it again. Like, hey, man, this person's actually taking this serious. Like, they made it past that two months, Mark. Like, hey, I'm going I'm to start liking their posts. I want to encourage them a little. Keep them going, right? Nine months in, they're going, hey, man, they're responding to your posts. They're, they're saying, hey, man, Nick, that was a great message. Thank you so much for sharing that. Dude, it really hit me today. And you're like, cool. You're starting to see people engage. A year in, they're starting to tag their friends in your posts. They're starting to say, hey, Come, come check out this guy, Nick, and he's making some really cool stuff. And I think you should follow him. Like they're introducing their friends to you. 12, you know, 18 months in. See, this is taking time. 18 months in, you wake up and your notifications have gone crazy. You've got viral things that are going around on the internet, people sharing. You're, you're being tagged around the internet by people you don't even know, never seen before. But it took you showing up every single day, consistently delivering value and encouraging other people and acknowledging what you're working on. And they're watching your transformation. They're becoming inspired by your transformation because you are improving. But the thing is, most people think that they're entitled to those results early on. And they're just they're they're frustrated because it was so easy at the first day. So they just thought that was going to get bigger from there. So you have to go through that no man's land. And to me, I always tell people this, Nick, is if you're not willing to show up every damn day for 12 months, minimum, like one year minimum, 365 driven, my brand, right? Then don't even start because you're going to get passed by people that will go in the full days every day for a year. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, that is, I mean, that's an incredibly good articulation of what I was trying to get at with attrition. <laughs> people just give up, right? Mm-hmm. One of, um, one of my sort of mentors, friends, Evan Carmichael, you may know as well. Yep. He's got a fantastic um, slide on his website, an image on his website, which shows like the 10-year journey of his YouTube build. And the first five years, have you seen it? The first five years, there's like three listeners or three watchers, yeah. right? And then it just compounds like you've never seen, yeah. right? And as he describes it, because it's a great example of what you're saying, he, he stuck at it, right? But he got better. 
Yes. He got better, he got better. People watched, they didn't give up, you know, all this sort of stuff. And then as he got better, it grew after that, you know, massive desert, massive no man's land. So yeah, really, mm. really nice articulation, mate. Thank you. Yeah, it's key. Guys, you gotta you gotta push through it and don't feel entitled to any result. And also have the humility and push your ego aside and realize that you're going to suck at anything new. Anything new you do, you're gonna suck. And I think that the more successful you are, the more ego these people have, and they're willing, they're not willing to go suck and be a beginner at something, right? For me, public speaking was that 2015, 2016, when I decided to go, I needed to go get over myself and like get over the stage fright and hire somebody and go to Toastmasters. I was really uncomfortable doing that. I had the stage fright, but I had to be willing to suck at it. Here I am at an executive level, multiple six-figure earner, multimillionaire, and I had to go will be willing to suck at that, just like me putting the apron on to go wait tables with an engineering degree in a job, right? So most people think that they have some entitlement to a lateral move, like they're high level at this and they're going to go do something new. They think they're going to make a, a direct lateral move and be high level at that too, just because they've created some authority or success somewhere else. And it's not true. And I find that a lot of times people, once they realize like, oh man, I really am not as good as I thought it was going to be. And they, those people just disappear. They they just, they give up because they'd rather the go be. the word you said before, Tony. It's the word you said before, which is ego, right? And, ego. And like, you know, because someone said to me, what, what's the what's the one thing that, you know, can really destroy entrepreneurship? And people say, oh, cash flow and all this sort of stuff. No, it's ego. Right? It's ego. It's, it's the ability that you sometimes have to go into something with a beginner's mind, right? And that's going to feel uncomfortable because just because you were great running this company, you know, it doesn't mean that yeah. you're going to be great in a totally different industry, a totally different sector or whatever it is, right? And no, I fully agree with that. Because you mentioned it before, um, I want to just understand the transition into 365 Driven. So so obviously you exited your business, you know, side hustle, you've kind of built your brand around that, you know, and what you do. Take me through the whole thinking behind 365 Driven. There was, there was two catalysts for that creation of that. And they both happened in 2015, a month apart. So 2015, we were going through an oil industry downturn, and I was in that management ranks where I had to, unfortunately, release 25% of our workforce. I was working for a major oil operator, and I started to see a lot of things that I, I deemed as unethical and decision-making. You know, you get into ageism and racism, things that are illegal here in the United States, but they were being done without being written, right? And I didn't like being part of those conversations. Even, you know, we all know it occurs. Nobody can deny that, but you'll never find it in writing because it's illegal. And I said, man, I don't really think I want to continue after four times in my career of these downturns. They, they have a brilliant way of just laying off everybody, then waiting for the oil to come back around and they hire people that, you know, back later on. And you have to go figure out what you need to go do in between. And, you know, the UK actually does a lot better than this. They actually just don't pay you guys as much and they keep you employed when there's a downturn. Well, here they pay a lot more, but then they lay you off. So it's kind of balances out but you end way. up it's happened to me right. a couple of times because i got sacked a few times you end up getting like a year's payout yeah <laughs> at the end, right yeah but but i agree with you and again i'll let you jump back into the story but that's the same thing that happened to me to come back to yeah. our initial thing i just got sick of the my values were being compromised but let's get back into it so so you've had to go through this cyclical change yet again yes yeah and you're thinking yeah. you know that's it i, I that's it I, what was the thing though just to be clear why this time had you had enough? Because at that time, I'd already crossed age 40 and I was highly compensated and there was a lot fewer seats at that level. So, you know, I was managing hundreds of millions of dollars in contracts. And I realized that even in the Houston area, which is an oil capital, 
there was maybe 20 of us that did what I did. And so anytime we would get laid off, you're going to be unemployed for eight months. It's, it's just like, you know, the higher you climb, the fewer chairs yeah. there are to take. So I kind of knew that it's not going to get any better as I keep going. Right. And so that was one thing. And just seeing the mistreatment of people who are loyal, and I, I had to hand the layoff paper to people that were 30 year residents of these companies who were really right there at the verge of the finish line to get their full pension. And these companies would lay them off to avoid paying them their full pension. They would get 80% instead of the hundred percent. And we're talking periods of one or two months before the finish line. That's and these people, 30 years, and they were just doing it from a financial standpoint. I was like, this is terrible. Like, like these people have dedicated their entire lives and they're excellent employees and you're laying them off after giving you that much time. You couldn't just like extend them like a month or month and a half and give them you their would full have loved, pension. You would have loved working Dude. in my world of private equity, mate. Oh, yeah, it's, it's equally <laughs> cutthroat. Yeah. Honestly, I've had, I've, had to, I've had to pray and redeem myself multiple times since leaving that world. <laughs> Dude, it's it's terrible. And I said, I don't know if I want to be a part of that. You know, I, I, it was really heart, heartbreaking to lay some of these people off. And so here I am, I, I, I left the career and then I went to my racing cars and I actually was in a near-death experience. So, oh, wow. And I, I was at the drag strip. We were running a thousand horsepower sports car, Dodge Viper twin turbo. And yep. we we're trying to set a national record. I've got a pretty good record of setting records and doing lap times and things like that. I used to write for automotive magazines. I have my automotive businesses. And you know, so this, this performance shop was local and they said, Hey, we can't get this number. Can you go drive our car? You have one that's faster. And I was like, yeah, I'd be happy to try to do this for you. And we had one pass it was at the end of the night because we didn't want a bunch of media and press and the weather was cool. So we're going to get a good number out of it. It was trying to run a nine second pass and everything was going well until the top of third gear. And when I shifted into third, the car kind of started pulling a little bit, you know, getting a little bit out of line, but that's normal. It's a lot of power. And I was trying to keep it off the right side wall. I was in the right lane. I was by myself and the car just kept moving over to the right and it started grazing this wall. Eventually, even though I was trying to keep it off the wall and I was like, what the hell is going on with this car? And and I remember that adrenaline rush was re replaced by, by anger at myself for damaging somebody else's car. And, and then I said, okay, but if that's the worst of it, no big deal. I, I, I could almost see the finish line. I'm, I'm just like, I'm just going to let off the, the, the run is done. Right. And as I came off of that wall, what I didn't realize is that something in the rear suspension was broken, which caused the rear wheels to do the steering instead of the front wheels. And so the car immediately went hard left and I went hard left looking at the concrete wall in the other lane 130 miles per hour. I don't know how many kilometers it is. It's fast. Just say it's fast. Yeah, it's fast. Don't worry. My, I've, I've got a bit of a background in cars, so I know what you, this, yeah. is why I'm, this is why I'm grimacing here a little bit. Yeah, um, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, I, and in that moment, I, I literally thought I was going to die. I was like, man, two-door sports car, high speeds, concrete wall. It's going to hit my side. And I felt really peaceful in that moment. And I even said to myself, well, here I go. And of oh, course, man. I survived the accident and the car sliding and I didn't know if I was injured. And, and I just remember I need to get out of this car. I just remember being conscious and just remembering being focused. Like I need to get out of this car because most people don't die from the impact is from fire. Cause you gotta realize engine oil, brake fluid, transmission fluid, all the fluids in your car are flammable. It takes one spark and you're a flaming fireball. And so I just remember the car finally coming to a stop and I had to pry the door open and the ambulance was there at the track and they put me in the back and I'm sitting in the back ambulance looking at this wreckage, just kind of looking thinking to myself, you know, why am I still here? Like, why am I not injured? And she's checking me, she's asking questions and see if I have a concussion. I'm answering really clearly. And at the end of, you know, she, her physical inspection, she's like, can I tell you something that's really odd? And in that moment, I felt kind of like, oh man, here, she's going to tell me like, what's wrong. Right. 
And she's like, no major injuries I can tell, but here's the thing that's different. Like you're remarkably calm. She's like, most people that crash out here have the adrenaline shakes, the cold sweats, the shortness of breath, like physiological signs of like just, just that impact, the trauma, right? And, and I said, I am really calm. And it was the same calmness. I felt that overwhelming peacefulness as I was approaching the wall. And, and I really reflected on that. And I said, well, maybe, maybe there's a reason I'm here. And I don't know what that means. So I wasn't working at the time. And I started thinking about, man, if I would have died, how would people remember me? How would they remember me? And I started thinking about my friends who had passed away in that scene. Like, how were they remembered? Like, that was a good guy. Like, how do they remember that person, right? We can always think about how we compare, right? And I said, just be honest with yourself. And for me, it was, Tony was a nice guy, rich dude, cool cars, gone too soon. But that's how I would have been remembered because that's how like several people I would compare myself at that time in my life. Nice, rich guy, cool cars, gone too soon. I said, like, is, is that good enough? Is that really good enough, Tony? And the answer to me, for someone who's always pushed myself to do more, to be really competitive, to try to extract the best out of me, the answer was that was like, it was like his blinding spotlight that this was not enough. Like this was very superficial. And although people that have been close to my proximity have become successful, I've helped 12 of my former employees build their own six, seven, eight figure companies. I didn't have the courage to put myself out there to reach more people. So unless you came to me and asked for me, I would mentor you. I did it for 15 years, had all these results. Everybody kept telling me I should be doing this full time. And I just said, oh man, I'm busy. Uh, I got a career, I got a kid. And, you know, I've got, you know, I had all the low hanging fruit excuses, but what it was really, what it really was Nick was that I, I didn't have the courage to put myself out there because I had a comfortable life. I had money. I had all these things, but I was also fearful, just like everybody, of potential criticism or naysayers or haters, right? Because I know they exist. I was like, I don't need that. I have a comfortable life and I avoided it. So after that accident, I started really thinking about it. It took me two more years to launch 365 Driven. I did it in 2017. But I said, the best way I'm going to impact this world, it's not the nonprofits and things like these things that you kind of think of. It's, I, I love business. I love teaching people business. And, I, and I've always been a nerd about reading things about business and just doing things. Even as a kid, I had Forbes and entrepreneur subscriptions at age 12, just reading these things because I didn't have money. So I figured if I read these magazines and talk about money, maybe I'll figure out money. So that's kind of the word snowballed from there. And I said, that's the best way I'm going to impact these people is give people confidence, encouragement, and the skills and the knowledge to go start and scale and exit the businesses. Because that's what I do, right? Same as you, but... Everybody listening, you have something in you that's special that you're going to legacy or build that's going to impact the world. You have to go figure what that is. And you got to go get better at that and learn how to extract it. And most people, they live with fear at the top and they put purpose below their fear. But after that accident, I realized that my time could have just been gone in an instance. I had to put my purpose above my fear and just go all in and do that. And it was really uncomfortable. It wasn't easy to do what I do now. I've never heard it expressed that way. I mean, it's it's funny actually. I've got on my I've got one tattoo on my body on my ankle, which is um, which basically stands for courage, mm. on the premise that like everything everything that's great in life sits on the other side of fear, right? And the question that comes to me is because we talked about this at the beginning of a conversation about jumping in and taking action and not overthinking it, like you did with your initial business that you sold. But on this one, you know, you said there was a bit of you know a couple of years. Of kind of getting yourself into it, maybe getting the getting the head and the heart behind it. Hmm. How, do, how do you how do you contextualize that? How do you reflect on that? Is it just fear? 
it's just fear. I mean, I grew up bullied. I mean, you got to realize that when I was a kid, all the authority figures were World War II people. My mom's Japanese. I'm half Japanese. Like you can imagine growing up in Texas with, a, with the police and the teachers and all these people as being World War II era people, they didn't like Japanese people, right? And so I have a skin condition. I have vitiligo. I'm covered with white spots. And so I grew up with people looking at me and saying, what's wrong with you? You know, like, why do you have all these spots? Like, what's wrong with you? Right. And so I got really good at performing in the background. I got really good at hiding behind the company logos and building successful businesses. But I avoided the camera. I avoided stages. I didn't want to be on video. I didn't like my recorded voice. Like all these these self-conscious, insecure things that are just compounded from our childhood. Most of the things that are messed up in our life are from our childhood. We know that. But are we willing to confront those things and make them better and become better as a result? Unfortunately, vast majority of people will never will because they lack the awareness of why they think the way they do or the way they believe. But it always comes back to our childhood, right? And so for me, I said, I'm just going to be successful despite all these things that I think that are holding me back. But what I really needed to go do is find that courage, like you said, and get out of my own way and understand that millions of other people have overcome the same things that you are listening here have thinking that is your problem. Like, no, there's no unique problems anymore. Mankind has no more unique problems. Like the ones you have or you think you have, millions of other people before you have already had those and figured that out. And so use logic. So how do I get over stage fright? Well, I go on Google and I said, how do you get over stage fright? I said, join Toastmasters, join a Rotary Club, hire a speaking coach, practice this. And I was like, oh, shit, like... It's like maybe it's starting to come real now. There you go. <laughs> well, dude, I, I, I even then I avoided it. Even then I avoided it, Nick, because I, I said, well, maybe I'll just write a book. Maybe if I write a book, I can be that unknown best-selling author that still gets my impact out there because I put it out there to the world. And if it did well, awesome. If it didn't, I tried, right? I still thought that way. And so I started writing this book and the title really wasn't Side Hustle Millionaire at the time. I had a different title in the manuscript and my editor's reading it and you know, chapter three or four, he's like, oh, this is going to be a good book. I think it's going to sell really well. It's like, hey, thank you. I thought he was just bluffing or buttering me up, right? It's like, cool. And chapter six or seven, he's kind of like, wow, man, this is really good. Like, I think that people are going to want to interview you. You might be invited on TV or on stages or podcasts. And it's like, oh, shit. Like, here it is, that thing confronting me again. So <laughs> even, even though I was trying to write this book and I admit in, in recent months, like, it was like a cowardly way of getting my information out to the world and not taking a big risk because it could have failed. And I would have just been like, cool, I tried. But it confronted me then. And I was like, you know what? I need to, I need to become the right person to, to tell this story. I need to become the right person to carry this message. And what does that take? It takes becoming a more effective communicator, becoming more confident. The way people hear me speak now, if you go look at my social media videos from 2017, I'm not the same person. Literally, I am not the same person anymore because I had to go do that. I did a video every single day for over a year, 365 driven every single day. And the reason was, is I was learning things about public speaking. And the only way I could practice was doing videos because I'd learned something. I was like, well, I don't have a stage. I don't have an audience. So maybe I'll just do social media videos and just practice the tactic to the skill that I'm learning. And so I would do that. And I got in better and better and better. And people started to see those improvements. And they go, hey, man, you're like really improving. Like, what's crazy? And here's the thing is like, I went from stage fright to really just going all in and showing up at those meetings and raising my hand and sitting in the front and participating because you'll never get there just by observing, right? I said, if I'm going to do this, I'm just going to go all in. And within six months, I was already winning public speaking competitions 
like I would go rounds. Like I was number three in Houston six months because I was so dedicated to it. So people listening, you can do this. It's, it sucks. It's hard. It's not comfortable, but you, you get the feedback and you just improve. Like people give you feedback. Hey, you're too monotone and you speak like this and you should just kind of add a little bit more emotion to your voice. Like, oh shit. So there's that moment of awareness, that little piece of awareness that I understand. Like, okay, that that's how I am. I, I need to improve that. How do I improve that? Like I do this and I practice. So dude, you can learn anything. Like everybody think the, they see other people doing something really well. And they think it's a skill or they think it's a talent. They always call it a talent because if I call that a talent, it means that I don't have that and I'll never have to do that. And I, it's kind of like justifying why you're not that way, right? Yep. You you put you put you put a barrier around it saying that someone's kind of like they didn't have to work at it, right? It's just yeah. like they were born. Oh, it's talent. It's talent. You know, physical talents, I'll give them that. Like there's physical things, limitations, right? But communication or things like that, these are skills. Let's it's just like if I wanted to go learn Chinese, I would go take lessons or read books or hire someone to teach me Chinese. And I would practice it and I would become proficient at Chinese. Well, public speaking is the same thing as learning a new language. It's just a new way of communicating. Yeah. Well, it, my, my, my view on that, my belief on that is that if something's important enough, you know, often it's said, if the why is big enough, right. You'll make a way, you'll find a way of making it happen. Right. And cause I mean, when I started my podcast, which is what a couple of hundred episodes in now, um, now people say, oh, I can't believe, you know, you've done, you've done a few, you know, 200 episodes. I'm like, I was never not going to because I made the decision. I, similar to you, I didn't jump straight into it. I had to think about it first, right? I procrastinated actually on it for a while to make, just to get my head into it. But once I made the decision to do it, that was it. And it sucked at first, right? <laughs> really sucked at first. Um, but after a while, it just became fun and you get better at it. And then yeah. that's it becomes part of who you are, right? Becomes part of your identity. Yeah, we're around the same. For me, I just crossed the three-year mark and I think 230 episodes. And yep. the best part about podcasting, if you're out there listening and you want to know understand why you should podcast, it's because of what you're listening to right now. It's two amazing people getting to know each other, building our network stronger, looking for opportunities, learning new things. It's like, I love these conversations. Yeah. I, don't, I don't charge anything for my podcast. You don't charge things for this, but the value that we get from just having these conversations and meeting people in these expanded networks, it's, it's literally worth millions of dollars. Like you got to think about this and over a long period of time, it is worth millions of dollars. It's also great for your soul. I mean, I, I'll give you an example of this. I think it's a good point just to land this right for people listening. So I, I used to do a lot of travel for work, right? As you did, right? And I would go to these big cities and we were talking about this kind of off air beforehand, how lonely sometimes the big cities can be, right? Mm -hmm. So I'd go to New York, I'd go to Sydney and I wouldn't know anyone, right? Just recently, okay, we've had the pandemic and all this sort of stuff. I did a month tour. I was in Dubai, Canada and into the US and pretty much every city I went to, there was nine cities, four countries, right? 27 days. I had someone in that city that I could go out for dinner with, go out for a drink with, stay at their house, right? You know, go to their events, speak on their stages, whatever, right? And that's all happened in the space of two and a half years since doing this. Incredible, right? The, the connections that you can make from this, let alone what it does for your business and other things. Yeah, it makes the world a lot smaller, for sure. So what's, what's next for Tony Watley? What are you excited about? I'm going to write my second book, 2022. I'm actually going to push myself to write a fiction book, although it'll be loosely oh, cool. based on entrepreneurship. I wanted to go more sci-fi, futurism, you know, pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-
pre pre apocalypse, I would say, is the kind of the era that I'm kind of framing my mind around that. So it's not going to have zombies in it. No, you know, because I'm really enthralled. I'm really enthralled by books like you know George Orwell's 1984 and how accurate it depicts today. I mean, that was written in the 1930s with his perception of what 1984 would be, but it's really closer to what 2021 is. So. Anyone that hasn't read that book, go find that classic book. I love book. that You'll book. I studied that in school and it's amazing, actually. It's one of those timeless books, isn't it? Like, yeah, you're right. And, and certainly in terms of not so much like, you know, what things are like, it's more about how people are thinking. It's the thoughts behind how he writes, which is just uncanny. I agree with you. It is crazy. I mean, guys, he wrote this book in, I think it's 1937. And he talked about monitors on the walls that could watch and listen to you. Like my Alexa review. I've been not say that it's going to go off. <laughs> I mean, and even when you watch the movie, like there was, it was, I think the movie is like from the 1970s or eighties and they had like these big screens on the wall that watched and listened to you. It's like, how did he know that? How did he know that that was going to be our televisions? Right. But big brother erasing history, rewriting history to make it sound like they, they were on the good side of everything. I mean, it's, it's crazy to think about that, but we also have a lot of theories about how it's going to be in the future. I see these things. And so I was like, how am I going to put that? I want it into a narrative book because I like telling stories. I like narrating. And it's also going to push my creative you know, energy because writing a, fic- a nonfiction business book is pretty easy because it's based on practical experience, right? Fiction is a whole different level of just pushing your creativity. So that's, that's one thing. And you know, recently I just filmed a documentary series that is probably going to be either on Amazon or Netflix. I'm one of the cast members and people will hear about that more as it comes out in 22. So that's okay, exciting. Awesome. Yeah. So a lot of good things going on. I'd be very curious to, uh, to hear if the writing the fiction book was more challenging than the public speaking story you shared. <laughs> Cause I can, Man. I can imagine there's going to be some certain nights where you're sitting there typing away going, Oh, how do I, how do I do this? But <sighs> I, I love writing. Ahead. I love writing, but I'll tell you public speaking, most people rank that higher than death. So I think that's <laughs> going to be hard to take that one down. Awesome stuff, Tony. Well, listen, it's been great having you on Scale Up today. Amazing stories, great shares. And I've got to say, like, even, even the way that you framed some of the, the different elements, you know, really, really, really strong. So where, where can people um, reach out to you if they want to get in touch, find out more about what you do? Yeah, I keep it really simple. All my social media, book, coaching group, everything's easy. It's 365driven.com which you've got anyone watching on the YouTube channel can see it everywhere there, which is a very nice uh, display of branding, sir. (laughs) Thank you. Well, listen, thanks for coming on the show. Great to meet you. Great to have this conversation and uh, yeah, catch up with you soon. Hey, Nick, thank thank you for coming on the show and I look forward to having you on my show as well. So we're going to have that going on pretty soon. Hey, thanks, man. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you've enjoyed the show just as much as I've enjoyed creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me, it helps the show, plus it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything that you heard in today's show, to find out how you can join our community on Facebook, or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now.